Well, good morning again on this lovely, well, this rainy day, Florida day. It's not supposed to rain this time of year, right? We are uh, continuing our sermon series uh, here in the book of Genesis, and today we will, we will actually finish the third chapter. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we started here in chapter 3, uh, the chapter that contains what theologians refer to as the fall. And uh, the first week in chapter 3, we saw that the disobedience uh, by our first parents caused them to initially hide from God. God's initial response is to seek them out, and yet they still hide from each other and from Him. And then last week, we noted not only the shame that rushes in through their disobedience, but also now the blame and the blame shifting that humanity takes on because of sin. And then we also saw towards the end God's promise, however, to overturn the damage that had been done and to ultimately and utterly defeat the enemy once and for all. Today we look at how God will respond directly to our first parents and the ramifications even for us still today. So if you have your Bibles, will you follow along? If not, you can follow along on the screen. We'll be reading from Genesis 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. This is God's holy word. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Sorry, I I know I recognize I'm going backwards. Just bear with me. (laughs) And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name, Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This ends God's word. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, now I, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts 
be acceptable in your sight. Jesus, speak to us. It is you we need to hear from, not the one speaking to the mic. We pray this, Jesus, for your sake. Amen. Well, one of my all-time favorite New York City stories came from an article several years ago, and I think it's probably one of my favorite stories because one of my first dates ever with my wife, Jen, took place at the setting where this story was writing about. Many years ago, a writer named David Hajdu recounted a time he was visiting New York City and wandered into the Village Vanguard. The Village Vanguard is a very famous local jazz club where literally the greatest jazz musicians in the world are known to simply pop in and play a few tunes on stage completely unannounced. It's got that type of a reputation. And so on one particular night, this author is there, and he thought, as he looked on stage, that the trumpeter in the band was Wynton Marsalis, one of the greatest jazz trumpeters of all time. But the room was dark, and he wasn't close enough to be sure. And this is a portion of what he writes in his article. The fourth song was a solo showcase for the trumpeter, who I now could see was, in fact, the Wynton Marsalis. He played a ballad entitled, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You, (laughs) completely unaccompanied. The piece can bring out the sadness in any scene, and Marsalis appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs at points, nearly talking the words into notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. This guy's a good writer. When he reached the climax, Marsalis played the final phrase, the title statement in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The room was silent until at the most dramatic point, Someone's cell phone went off. (laughs) Blaring a rapid sing-song melody in electronic beeps. People started giggling, just like you just did, picking up their drinks. The moment the whole performance unraveled. I pulled out a cocktail napkin and scrawled, Magic Ruined. That became the title of his article. And I would make the case it's actually not a bad headline for Genesis 3. Magic ruined. Or in the words of the 17th century English poet John Milton, paradise lost. That's what you and I experience every single day since Genesis 3. Something inside of us that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 simply longs to know a regular rhythm of profitable, creative, productive contribution to and in this world, but instead we often feel stuck or unnoticed in our work. And it sometimes takes everything we have just to show up to the office 
or fear that we have missed our opportunities to contribute to this life, and it frustrates us. Magic ruined. Paradise lost. Something inside of us that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 longs to find and to know full intimacy and acceptance with another human being, a relationship where we're fully known and cherished, but our efforts are continuously impeded. And our hope of ever experiencing what we were designed to experience by our own creator diminishes. Magic ruined. Paradise lost. Something inside of us or a family member or a close friend that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 longs to know what it is for another human being, smaller and younger and in need of our full attention and protection to call us father and mother and look to us for guidance and wisdom, but it doesn't or it can't happen. And it just seems beyond our capacity to do well as a parent at all sometimes. And we grieve. Magic, ruin, paradise, lost. Things are just not the way they're supposed to be. It's dark. (laughs) It's bad news. But this morning, I, I would suggest that perhaps there might just be some consolation, some redemptive hope as we re-enter chapter 3 by suggesting that the good news of all of redemptive history is at least inversely proportional to the bad news. The good news of all redemptive history is at least inversely proportional to the bad news, to the degree that you and I appreciate how bad the bad news is perhaps we will come to realize the good news of the gospel and God's grand plan of redemption and recreation and restoration actually gets all the more glorious. So here we go again, one last time (laughs) in chapter 3. Again, we left off last time after God had started interacting with our first parents after their rebellious act by starting with questions for them. And each time they responded laying the blame somewhere else other than on themselves. And if you recall, God didn't immediately respond to their blame shifting. But that didn't mean he didn't agree with their, that didn't mean he agreed with their assessment. (laughs) But here in our text this morning, for the first time, God makes a declarative statement in verse 14 to the serpent. Adam blamed Eve and God himself. Eve blamed the serpent, that is personified evil, the great tempter. But the great tempter not, never got a chance to respond to God. To personified evil, God just spoke a curse. That's significant and telling. In Luke 17, Jesus himself issues a dire warning. There Jesus says, temptations to sin are sure to come. They will come. You will be tempted. (laughs) But woe to the one through whom they come. God takes all infringements on his laws, all sin, all rebellion very seriously, but Jesus calls out the one who would create a stumbling block for others as especially the target of God's 
anger. You just don't want to be that individual. (laughs) As it's actually playing into the hand of the great tempter himself. But then we move on in verse 16. God now turns back to the woman. To the woman, God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The very first consequence God names to our parents' first parents' sin affects the first arena of humanity's creational commission. That is to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers. That's the first consequence. The man and woman were tasked with multiplying images to fill the earth with God's glory, but now that task itself will be met with significant hardship and pain that will even be multiplied. And so now there are, yes, there are complications, even pain involved in bearing children. I watched my wife three times. I can't imagine the pain she had to go through. The first time was without even painkillers. She did it. It's a consequence, however, of the fall. And though by God's grace, science has helped lower the infant mortality rate from what was for years, thousands of years, scientists believe it was about 300 out of every thousand live births until about 200 years ago resulted in the death of a baby. Just a few years ago, it is now down to 5.5 out of 1,000 births today. That significant change, nevertheless, Because of Genesis 3, almost 20% of pregnancies still end in a miscarriage due to no fault of the mother. Genesis 3, magic ruin. Paradise lost. But even more than that, our experience now is that everything about raising other images of God will be hard and painful, and there will be barriers in the way. Smaller and less wise human beings will irrationally resist the guidance of older, stronger, wiser images of God. (laughs) And as parents, there will be nights of angry frustration and of seemingly powerless weeping. The entire process of seeking to fulfill the creational commission to be fruitful and multiply more images that grow up to glorify their creator will now be laced with heartache and struggle Because of Genesis 3, because of what happens here. Magic ruined, paradise lost. It's not the way things are supposed to be. But next, God pronounces the fall's effects on the relational ordinance between the man and wife. And by virtue of all of us descending from this first human couple, all subsequent marriages as well. The end of verse 16, continuing his words to the woman, God says, your desire shall be for your husband or some translations say contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What does that mean exactly? Your desire shall be for your husband. Well, next chapter, actually chapter 4 and verse 7, we're going to see a very similar parallel grammatical structure. There we read, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so therefore, desire here must have some kind of negative motivation. In other words, the woman's desire for her husband and her husband's ruling over her must mean that sin will seek 
to control and dominate humanity. And therefore, for the woman and the man, it must therefore now mean regular, ongoing competition for power between the couple. From the very beginning, we saw God create the man. God immediately witnessing a malediction over the man's aloneness. Then God bringing the complementary and opposite partner and strategic ally to him. And at that point, there was no experience of tension or confusion or competition or authoritarian domination in that first couple until Genesis 3. And since the fall, there's always been and there will remain a competition for power. Magic ruin, paradise lost, things are not the way they're supposed to be. But finally, we see the third arena of the creational commission that's affected because of humanity's waywardness. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The arena where humanity was to be creative, be productive, is now also another arena where there's going to be pain and heartache. Since the fall no longer was subduing the ground a matter of simply breaking up the ground, planting a seed, and keeping it watered. (laughs) If only it was that easy. Now there's a lack of harmony between humanity and the land. And we feel it everywhere that you and I put our hands or our feet or our heads to work to attempt to make something creative and productive out of the world that God has made. Since Genesis 3, there is now added frustration to our working the land, whatever our particular field is. And not just in our daily nine-to-five job. (laughs) but in every sphere of life. Magic ruin, paradise lost, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Gee, John, thanks for this downer. But somehow, even in this passage, it might only be a glimmer. It's not a full-blown declaration But there does appear for the very first time what seems to be at least somewhat of a faithful response by our first parents. It may be subtle, but it's there. Notice in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The mother of all living. There is at least a small sense of hope, perhaps, in Adam's naming action. He perhaps believes that this is not, in fact, the end after all. He is already, perhaps, receiving by faith God's commitment, God's faithfulness. And even though his own physical death was certainly now imminent, to dust you shall return, and even though he certainly died spiritually that day, as his close and intimate relationship with his creator was severed, and he will even be banned from the immediate presence of God in the garden, he apparently seems to be holding on to God's promise to, in fact, 
somehow through his offspring, through his wife's offspring, overturn the sabotaging work of the tempter, the mother of all living. And furthermore, our first parents receive mercies here. A little more hope in Genesis from their creator, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Humanity had tried to cover their nakedness and shame, remember? They tried to use fig leaves, but that was a feeble effort. (laughs) And it was not enough, not anywhere near enough. And so God takes it upon himself to provide proper clothing for them. And as the audience of this writing at this time would have certainly been aware of the sacrificial system that was required for God and his people to continue to dwell together, they would have not missed the profundity of the act of the sacrifice that would have been required for these clothes to be made for this couple. But furthermore, notice even mercy in disciplinary action from God in verses 22 to 24. And Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Apparently, and theologians are mixed on this, but apparently the tree of life was either a tree that would continue to give and sustain life as long as there was access to it, or alternatively, perhaps Adam and Eve had not yet eaten of the tree but would have been confirmed in their current fallen state for all eternity had they done so. And so God, before he can even complete his thought out loud, sets up an angel to guard the way back to the tree of life. Why? What is he doing? God here is actually limiting the experience of their suffering and pain in this life. It was discipline, yes, but it was merciful and hopeful at the very same time. The reality is that we all desire to return to Eden still today. The desire to be back where humanity once walked with our creator and our God in his unmediated presence still remains. We know we are not, we we know we are built for more. And in fact, Revelation even tells us there will come a day when we will return to the tree of life. Revelation, the author of Revelation says in chapter 5, to the one who conquers, this is actually Jesus speaking, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. John has Genesis 3 in mind as he's writing there in Patmos. Access to God's intimate presence without sin or misery or pain getting in the way is very much on the horizon and promised to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what about that great redemptive light of hope and good news in the light of the bad? What about that? Well, New City, as a church, your vision actually reflects your belief in the truth that Jesus is right now making all things now, 
And that means that glimpses of restoration are even now possible. That means that true change can happen. That means that reverberations of what life must have been like in Eden can genuinely be experienced in this life, albeit never perfectly. And how do we know this? Paul actually makes an argument in 1 Corinthians 15 that the new creation is actually underway. And there's actually proof that God is already making good on his promise to our first parents to overcome the sabotaging work and fall there in Genesis 3. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul points specifically to the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth as the key event in human history that demonstrates that God is, in fact, at work overcoming the drastic effects of the original fall of Genesis 3. And in fact, Paul says, if the resurrection hasn't happened, if all there is is simply a life filled with pain and sorrow and suffering, then Paul says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the Apostle Paul. <laughs> if the resurrection didn't happen, Paul says, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Paul is being honest. <laughs> and then he candidly remarks in verse 19 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, if in Christ." We have hope in this life only. We are of all people the most to be pitied. <laughs> in other words, if Christ hasn't been raised, this is all pie in the sky by and by. But then Paul says, no, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. <laughs> the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul goes on to say that by Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, it is demonstrating that God's cosmic restorative plan is now in fact in place. And he's rewriting fallen history through his reign. And he does that through you, his people, his church. He's working even now through New City to make it a reality for others in Palm Bay to see that Jesus makes, in fact, all things new, starting with the human heart. Still frozen at the microphone, Marsalis replayed the silly cell phone melody on his trumpet, note for note. Then he repeated it. And then began improvising variations on the cell phone tune. The audience slowly started coming back to him. In a few minutes, he had resolved the improvisation in which he had changed keys, actually, once or twice, throttled back down to a ballad tempo, and ended up exactly where he had left off 
with you. The ovation (laughs) was tremendous. Friends, there's no getting around the bad news. The magic has been ruined. Paradise has been lost. You and I experience it every day and will continue to experience the pain and misery until Jesus returns to fully complete his restoration work, overcoming what you and I messed up in his good creation. But my friends, there is true hope even now in the gospel because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not that when you become a Christian, all your problems go away. Not that we even escape someday to a spiritual world and fly around and play harps all day. That's not your future. Rather, God is actually, through his son, Jesus of Nazareth, going to take not just all of our silliness, but he's going to take all of our mess, all of our sin, and somehow redemptively improvise in the midst of it. All things work together for good, those who love God. That's the business that God is in, restoring and redemptively improvising on all the brokenness and sin in this world. And he's picking up where things left off, where in Genesis 3, everything went literally to hell. And he's going to wholly and fully restore what once was. Our ultimate hope, as one theologian says, is not life after death, but the life after life after death. When Jesus makes all things new, when everyone that are in Jesus Christ are raised again from the dead, and we will reign with him for all eternity. And he's already started. And therefore, you and I have great reason no matter how you're experiencing the brokenness of this life today, to not lose hope. Because the gospel is true. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And one day he will come back to complete his mission of making all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We are each experiencing the brokenness and fallenness of this world in so many different ways. Most obviously, of course, is our own sin and our own rebellious hearts and the way that gets in the way of life. But the extension of the the brokenness of the fall here in Genesis 3 is is very wide (laughs) and extensive. And so, Jesus, I would pray that no matter how we are most acutely and palpably right now in this moment feeling the brokenness and fallenness of this world, that we would be all the more reminded because, Jesus, you have risen from the dead. You are the first fruits of a new creation, that you are making things new. May we know and believe and continue to trust you in the process And that we have reason to hold on to great hope, even as dark as it can be sometimes. Because, Jesus, you have made a commitment and a promise. So, Jesus, we we look forward with great expectation for your return. But until then, Jesus, 
continue to, to guide us, remind us, and be with us. May we know your re- resurrection power. May that continue to fuel our hope, even as we daily experience magic, ruin, and paradise loss. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.